Heavenly Father, for each person that's gathered here this morning, I pray blessings upon them in Jesus' name. God, those who are here this morning who come with burdens, who come with needs, who come with a desire to hear and to seek after you, I pray, Holy Spirit, right now in Jesus' name, that they would encounter you. Lord, throughout this series, we've been talking about encountering God. What does it mean to encounter God, and what do our lives look like after we've had that encounter? Holy Spirit, this morning, I ask for the full counsel of your presence this morning. Lord, for whatever people would come to seek after you, to ask of you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would hear you. I pray, God, that we would meet with you. I pray your children, which is us, no matter what our ages are, we are your children. I pray that we, your children, would hear from uh, our Heavenly Father this morning. So, Spirit of the Most High God, we invite you this morning as we enter into worship, as we have that opportunity, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, be with us in a very powerful way. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let your praise be your welcome. Let our songs be a sign.
Father God, we welcome you here today. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts now to hear from you and soften us so that we can respond to what you say to us. Um, yeah, and I pray for our kids now um, as they go to their kids' church that you would speak to them and that they would know your love and your greatness. Amen. So kids, you guys are dismissed to your kids' programs up to grade six. Um, and everyone else, if you can turn your attention toward the screen, that would be great. ने मुझे सुविधापूर्वक जीवन के लिए नहीं बोला उसने मुझसे कभी ये वादा भी नहीं किया पर उसने मुझसे ये वादा किया है कि वो मेरे साथ चलेगा और उसने वादा किया है कि सब कुछ फिर से नया कर देगा गांव में रहने चाहता हूँ और गांव ही मेरा पसंद का है हम जो काम करते सेत मजूरी काम करते तो मैं दो नजर क्षेत्र तक बीमार पड़ा और स्कूल गए नहीं पाया मम्मी भी बीमार थी वो भी मैं मेंटल सा था मुझे गुस्सा आता था उसको मारने के लिए पत्थर जो भी मिला उसे मारते थे मैं सर्च में गए तो हमको सामने बिठा के और और बच्चे हमारे भला वो करके वो दुआ मांगते थे प्रभु ऐसे स्वामी नींद में था तो अचानक लाइट की तरह हम इधर आके बैठा जैसा हो गया तो मेरे आके खुल गए जैसा हो गया मैं और बहुत दिन था जब मैंने शांति कर पाई करके हमको गांव का मुखिया जो हमको घर में रहने नहीं दिया सर छोड़ दो ये तुम्हारा कौन सा देवी देवता है करके 
तुम्हारा इसमें कोई लेना देना नहीं करके पार कर दिए थे अमरगव के घर का जो कवेलू था वो उतारा और दरवाजा पूरा निकल के पार कर दिया तब हमारा घर को तोड़ डाल उसके बाद वो खुद ही पुलिस स्टेशन में आए और डराए एक साल काम में नहीं थे चर के आसपास एक छोटा सा झोपड़ी था उसमें रहते थे और खेत में हमको नांगने नहीं देते और खुद के यहाँ कोई साधन नहीं था बैल वगैरह कुछ भी नहीं था प्रभु ने जो कुछ पहले था ना तो उसमें हमको विश्वास में लाए तो प्रभु नहीं छोड़ सकते ये मेरे भाइयों जब तुम नाना प्रकार की परीक्षा में पढ़ो तो इसको पूरे आनंद की बात समझो यह जानकर कि तुम्हारे विश्वास के पर के जाने से धीरज उत्पन्न होता है पर धीरज को अपना पूरा काम करने दो कि तुम पूरे और सीधा हो जाओ और तुमने किसी बात की घटी न रहे Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place and we ask that as we seek after you, after we as we look to you, I pray God that you would speak to us. Lord, the greatest lie that North American Christians live in is the lie that God doesn't speak anymore. He doesn't work or act the same as he did in the past or even around the world. And God, because of that lie, we live our lives as if we never will encounter God, as if God will never do anything. to intervene in our lives or to speak or to meet us and lord i pray that that wouldn't be the case holy spirit we pray you come and just uh speak faith into our lives lord that our faith would rise up to believe and to trust in the things that you say we ask all these things in jesus name amen well good morning and welcome and thanks so much for joining us we are going to wrap up part 1 of the enchanted series now here's what i mean by that as i was praying uh through the series a little bit Uh, I felt this prompting, so I had another series ready to go after this one, but um, I have felt that with this series that I'm setting us up for encountering God, but then I need to kind of unpack what that actually would look like. And so the second part is going to be more about uh, 
about the practicalities of that of that of that kind of a faith walk. And so we're going to continue the series on, but in a, in a different fashion in what I call part two, and you'll get it for next week. But this week, we're going to wrap up this section of it, and we're going to talk about the greatest miracle. So we talk, I said last week that I was going to tell you what the greatest miracle in the Bible is, and, and a couple of you texted me saying, is it this, is it that? And, uh, and I'm not, I, I don't think I, I gave it away. So uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get to that in a second. But first, let's recap what we talked about last week. Last week was this idea about talking about death and the afterlife. What is interesting about world religions, what is interesting about Christianity is that apart from everything else, we have to realize that uh, religions in general are about uh, understanding the world that we live in and then also understanding in the life after this world. And, and until you can understand it, like sometimes I think we, we have this idea in our mind, and I don't know if it's because of how we have been raised or how uh, Christianity has been taught to us, but we, 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 we kind of think about Christianity as just this thing that being a good person right now. And we kind of forget about this idea that God actually promises something above and beyond that. And I think previous generations really had this hope. I, I know, and um, I've spoken about my, my, uh, my mother uh, on several occasions, but my mother, who uh, suffered from uh, a really severe form of rheumatoid arthritis uh, towards the uh, last I don't know, 25 years of her life, really, um, and something she was affected with even more than that. For her, heaven wasn't just this nice thing that she would think about. It was the hope that she would have because the life that she was living wasn't a great life. She was bedridden. She, she, had hard, uh, she hardly could move, and everything was painful for her. And, uh, and, and so when we talk about heaven, when she would kind of describe to me her concept of the afterlife, it was about wholeness and healing. It wasn't about escapism. It was about this idea of like finally that in this in this next life that's to come, that I will be I'll I'll be restored to what it should what my body should have been, and I think that what's happened and again this is just a, a hypothesis but I think we as Christians have become so comfortable with this life that we can't even imagine the afterlife, or that it seems more of an inconvenience. Uh, I <laughs> I remember when I was younger that I was just like okay Jesus don't return until I get married. Because I want to have sex. And so if you could just wait and hold off on that, that would be fantastic. And uh, I'm just being honest with you, right? It's one of those things as, as a younger, it's like, oh, you know, I want Jesus to return. Just, just, just hold off until this happens, though. And then, and then after that, I don't really care about life after that. So you, you, you can just return after that. And some of you are laughing, but the fact is some of you who are unmarried think the same thing. So... Um, Last week, we talked about this idea of death, and I love this quote by E. Morenz is this, the anguish of death hangs over and leads the human spirit to wonder about the mysteries of existence, man's destiny, life, and the world. I think what we have to realize is, is as much as we can distract ourselves in this world, as much as we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking advances of medicine or technology, death is a very real possibility. Matter of fact, death is the only certainty that we have in this room. I have no other certainty of my life except for the fact that at some point in time, I will stop breathing unless the Lord returns. And now that I'm married, you know, he can come anytime. I don't care. Um, just a loop back that around. No. Um, but the thing is, is, is those of us have, who have had um, someone we love or close to us who have passed on, it's in those moments, and as a pastor, having done funerals or being part of funeral services, what is interesting to me about that, and I use the word interesting in, 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 a, in a very gracious way, but it's, it's the people gathered in the room are wrestling with a reality that they've, they've ignored for a long period of time. 
Like, I don't think about death. I don't have to worry about death. But now if someone I know has passed away and, and there is their body and we are all around here and the, the quiet conversations are about our mortality. Right, because many of us can live with this invincibility of like, I'm going to live forever. I feel like nothing ever is going to happen. And, and, and yes, and the younger you feel that way, but you know, like even as you get older, you feel that way as well too. But what, what death reminds us is that this world, this life that we live will come to an end. And again, spoiler alert, right? But uh, it, it will come to an end. And, and what the Bible teaches us is that is just the beginning of another type of life. And that's something that we have forgotten. We looked at the uh, story of, um, of the rich man and Lazarus. And you notice I didn't use the word parable. I'll use the word story. Because I said to you that in this account, it's, it's different than any other parable that Jesus did in the fact that he actually names a person in the parable. Remember, in Jesus' parables, he always says a rich man, a Levite, a farmer. right? He always uses a, a classification to kind of make it generic. Well, in this one, he actually names the person. And most commentators, even though they wrestle whether this is a parable or not, say that you know that's actually different. Remember I said to you that whenever the Bible does something it hasn't done before, or when, it, when something happens that's never happened before, you have to kind of pay attention. It's there for a reason. And so for us, we see this and say, okay, this is actually Jesus kind of giving us a, a, a bit more of, a, of an insight into the afterlife. And we kind of looked at the story of the rich man Lazarus, and we kind of came up with a couple of um, lessons from it. The first one we said is that our lives are ours to live. That's kind of awkward to say. But what I mean by that is the rich man Lazarus both had decisions to make in their lives, how they were going to live their lives. And so with the story, what we see is that, you know, at the end of the day, you get to live your life whichever way you want to. And not just you, but those uh, in this world, we all get to decide how the kind of person that we want to be. And, and, and that is absolutely true. But the secondary part, though, is that death is final. Like, like I have to, I want to be very clear here that, and, and we, we, we saw a video about, you know, near-death experiences or people returned from the other side. As I said to you last week, and I'll just unpack this, I'm not, I, I don't really believe it, and I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan. I'm not, uh, I'm not one of those people that, you know, have purchased a book about, uh, oh, I've been to heaven, I came back, and, and there's like, you know, like soft ice cream everywhere. I, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't quite, I'm like, ah. The Bible tells us that, that once we have ceased this life, that, um, that, that it, it isn't coming back. Now, one person asked me one time, what about ghosts? What does the Bible say about ghosts? And listen, um, that's actually a real question because if you look at it, more people believe in ghosts than they do God. So it's kind of like, well, what are ghosts? Now, I'm going to give you a hypothesis. And when I say hypothesis, I mean it's a guess because the Bible isn't explicit. And so this is my best guess. The enemy, we talked about this throughout the series, that they are, there are two realities to the world, right? There, is, there are the angelic, which are faith, those, who, those angels, those beings that are unseen to us, which are still faithful to God. And they carry out God's will on this earth. We also know on the other side of that, there are beings who are fallen, those who are unfaithful to what God would ask. And these beings, are their, their main task, their main goal is to distract, hurt, hinder, harm humanity so that we are not going to be in relationship with God. And I would say to you, and this is a premise, this is a hypothesis, I have no scripture going to pop up on the screen to back up what I'm about to say here. Are we clear on that? Okay, so save the emails and, and the text, okay? My hypothesis is if the enemy can distract us to think about ghosts or our loved ones returning back to us or something like that, why not, right? If we think the door is kind of fluid and it's like, 
Why not? Right? And who knows you better than those who are sent to torment you? It's, it's, it's like if you were to say to yourself, um, I'm going to wear a camera 24-7 on my forehead, and that whatever I do, people will see. How many want to volunteer for that? I, I don't... I, I'm, Unless you're a sociopath. No, you would not want to do that. Nobody wants to do that, right? Like, nobody wants to do that. Well, the Bible tells us, and again, again, I'm getting spooky here, but I'm, I'm just going to be honest. The Bible tells us that this unseen part of the world that is, is against us sees us in every aspect. Why do, we, why, why do you think that the temptations of the enemy or, or, or that aspect of the enemy is so on point? Because they see what we see. They see what we do. And I'm also going to make another hypothesis. They, can't, they, they cannot read our minds. I'm just going to throw that out there. You can disagree with me. That's okay because the Bible isn't explicit. I'm just going to say that they can't, they can't take away our free will, our self-will that way. So when we talk about this idea of the afterlife, we have to be very careful. And I, I hope last time, last week, and every time I've talked about angels and the demonic, I've tried as much as possible to, say, to, to only say what the scripture says. And if I say anything that is a hypothesis, I will say this is a hypothesis. This is a guess. Because the Bible does not give us explicit um, realities on the other, light, on the, on the other, other side of this curtain that is that separates us from the angelic, the demonic. We, we just don't know. And so these are best guesses. So with us, this idea, and we look at this passage in Hebrews 9, 27. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so that brings us to our next part, is the decision is immediate. Now, notice I didn't say judgment is immediate. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that once we take our last breath, the next moment after that moment is our lives are going to be then, the destiny of our lives are then, is, is, is now set. So if we have chosen Jesus, if we have chosen faith and not perfection, and not that we haven't sinned, not that we haven't fallen, not that we haven't failed, but if we have clung to Jesus, we have clung to what the Bible says, then the next, the next stage after life is already determined. There is no negotiation. There is no kind of, ah, well, you know, it was pretty good. It's kind of good. Because I, I don't of you, but when I stand for God, I'm gonna say like I don't like I don't deserve heaven. There's nothing about me that deserves heaven. Like I don't deserve this 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 life with you after this life. But that's it's not about my deserving. It's about what Jesus has done and my faith in, in placing what Jesus has done. That's what it's about. And so the the decision is immediate. And the final thing we had to say about this is God is just that whatever you think about with the afterlife, however you want to understand it. Because people will say to me, well, what about a good person? What about Bill Gates? Or, or what about, you know, uh, this person? Or what about that person? And we can all do this. We can, we, we can do this till, till we're dead. There are some great people out there in the world who do not believe in Jesus. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is works or goodness the entrance into heaven? And if that is the case, then Jesus came for no reason. This is why Christians can be bad people. And this is why it perplexes us so much when Christians are bad people. Because you think to yourself, well, aren't we all supposed to be good people? And I wish to say to you, yes. But as a pastor, let me tell you, no. It is not the case at all. But that's not the point. Because if we make that the point, then we've forgotten what Christ has done. And it's not about how good we are. It's, and again, it's not that we don't want to transform in that process. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But it's about like, okay, Jesus said this. He promised this to those who would follow him. That's all I got. And whether I'm crawling on my knees or running or jogging, whatever it be, I'm, I'm trying to move towards what God wants for me. And so that's the idea before it. 
we looked at these two quotes, one from Tim Keller, one from C.S. Lewis, and I think they're such great quotes to talk about this. The one from Tim Keller says this, hell then is the trajectory of his soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. What I think Tim Keller is really kind of, really concisely pinpointing is that the afterlife is just this life continued. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, like there is no, like, I'm just standing before God and there's a big lever and I'm standing over the top of a trap door. And there's scales there, and God's going to be like, oh, you're a good person, you're a bad person, or you're actually you're 50-50, so we're going to put you over here for another thousand years, and then I'll make a decision about you afterwards. No, no, no. We don't stand before God and say, well, what do you think? We stand before God, and it's a kind of, um, it's, it's what that one quote from C.S. Lewis says, right? God says, in the end, there's only two types of people in the world. The people who said to God, thy will be done, or whom God says to us, thy will be done. Right? Like, like that's it. Right, that, 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 that's it, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. And I love that. You know, of all the dumb tattoos I've seen, this would be a good one to have there, right? Uh, like, like hell is a monument to human freedom. See, we, we choose it. We absolutely choose it. It is not sprung upon us. It is not like, oh, no, I didn't realize. Like, no, 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 it, we choose it, right? We absolutely choose it. And so, that's what we talked about last week. Yeah, it was a real crowd pleaser, as you can tell. And uh, so we're going to wrap up this, part, this section of the Enchanted series, kind of reminding ourselves where we started off this series. Remember, we looked at this article by Dr. Michael Heiser talking about this idea of why Christians are uncomfortable with the supernatural. Remember what Dr. Heiser says. He says this, Modern Christianity suffers from two serious shortcomings when it comes to the supernatural world. First, many Christians claim to believe in the supernatural, but think and live like skeptics. We find talk of the supernatural world uncomfortable. This is typical of denominations and evangelical congregations outside the charismatic movement. In other words, those from a background like my own. What I think he's saying is really important, and this is actually where, and you know, not to get too controversial here, but I think this is where Christians have gotten a, an over-obsession with politics. Right, because we think this is this is how we change the world. This is this is how we make the world better, and we know how well that works out, right? And so, like what Dr. Heiser is saying, I think is really important. Is is Christians today? We talk we talk about the supernatural. Yes, heaven and hell, angels. Yes, of course. But we live like skeptics. We live as if this reality is not even possibly true. We we live this kind of lie that we, we don't want to admit to, right? And I think Dr. Heiser is absolutely correct. The second thing he says is this. The other reason is less self-congratulatory. The believing church is bending under the weight of its own rationalism. A modern worldview that would be foreign to the biblical writers, traditional Christian teaching has for centuries kept the unseen world at arm's length. We believe in the Godhead because there's no point to Christianity without it. The rest of the unseen world is handled with a whisper or a chuckle. And I kind of think that's absolutely true. When I talk to people, even when I unpack this series, like people can kind of go, oh, come on, you're talking about that? Yeah, the Bible assumes this to be absolutely true. And again, not that we have full knowledge of this, but it absolutely is true. My contention is that if our theology really derives from the biblical text, we must reconsider our selective supernaturalism and recover a biblical theology of the unseen world. And that has been my challenge throughout this series. That has been my premise to you throughout this series is that you need to really rethink how you understand this world. And again, it's, it's, uh, this, is, this is the type of topic that we have to walk right down the middle. 
right? Because you have such an over-obsession with, with angels and demons to the point where that's all you think about. On the other hand, you can be so on the other side of it going, well, you know, none of it's true, so therefore I can live whatever I want. It's like, nah. Middle, right? In, in this particular case, in this particular topic, although I think in most topics, the middle is actually probably the best way to go. That it exists, we're not quite sure, but we don't want to ignore it, but we also don't want to live like it actually exists. Um, there's some questions we've been asking throughout this series that we've been kind of hopefully unpacking or answering or at least proposing so you could maybe think about it. We asked a question at the very beginning. We said this, uh, and not so much a question as more of a statement, but we have forgotten what we are and who we belong to. So as Christians, we've forgotten that, you know, Christianity isn't a behavioral modification program. Right? We've said to ourselves as Christians, oh, like, you know, Christians are good people. And we define good as this. And, you know, as our, in our small group this week, uh, in, my, in my city group, we, we were talking about this idea of, of sin and, and where it kind of comes from. And it was great to have this really great conversation about, you know, the effects of sin and, and, and all that. But the, the problem is, is that how, we, how Christians used to define goodness is no longer in the realm of Christianity. So traditionally, Christians were all about charity and doing good things for the poor, the impoverished, the displaced, all that. And that was good. And historically, I can show you that Christians were at the very forefront of this. In the last, I don't know, depending on how, which, uh, which, which metric you want to look at, I'll say 50 years, just to kind of go uh, make it simple. That is no longer the case. You know, this field is now occupied by other people who are actually doing some great work as well, too, for the poor, for the impoverished and charity and all that. And so what Christians would self-identify saying, hey, as a Christian, this is what I do. And, and people go, oh, that's great. But now people who are atheists or, or other things, are, oh, I'm doing it too. And as Christians are like, oh. So then what, what's, what's our thing then? How, how do we define ourselves? And we have forgotten what we are and who we belong to. The next question we ask is, how much proof or evidence do you need? We talk about the supernatural, and someone could say here, like, well, you know, just prove to me that God exists, and if, if God did this, then I will believe. And we kind of unpack that a little bit, and we realize that there isn't any amount of proof that you can have. As a matter of fact, even as Christians, when God intervenes or speaks to you in your life, you kind of can tend to forget it. You tend to kind of displace it, downplay it. Well, it was going to happen anyways, or I, you know, it was going to happen, or God would do this, or, oh, that's just a coincidence. I have found as a Christian, and you guys can take this whichever way you want to, but I find there's less and less coincidences in my life anymore. The things happen for sure, but less coincidence than I would like to think. Right? When we say the word coincidence, what we're saying is this is a random act of, of the universe, alignment, I don't know, however you want to talk about it. But as a Christ follower, there's less coincidences when you kind of try to seek after and walk in life in the spirit. Uh, the next question we've asked is, does miraculous create faith? This is a great question, right? Because some people say, when I, and I've talked to individuals, say, well, if God would do this or, or this miraculous thing could happen, then I will believe. I, again, I don't think that's true, actually. I don't know. If, if, you, if you are skeptical, if you're bent to skeptical, no matter, no matter how much proof God offers you, I'm not sure if that will actually create faith in you and decide to follow God. And the last one we talked about is this idea of power. If you had access or control over the supernatural, what would you do with it? Because that's the next question we have to ask ourselves, right? Because when we ask God, pray to God, and this morning we're going to have that time of prayer, but as, as everything I say to you in this church, we don't live an outcome-based faith. And what I mean by that is, is, is God isn't God because he does what we want. 
God is God because who he is. And whether in this life we have to suffer or, or, or not have the understanding that we need to, that does not diminish who God is. And maybe what he's trying to do in our lives is, is that faith arise within us and, and trust in him arise within us. And so that was the last thing we talked about. We have this three assumptions about the supernatural, and these three assumptions are actually going to carry over into the next section as well, too. But I want to remind you of them. The first one is this. We are affected and can't affect. We, sorry, we are affected and can't affect. That's supposed to be affect. This supposed to be either, not an A. So just, uh, no? Maybe it's, am I, okay, anyways. Uh, we are affected and can't affect. Uh, it just feels weird. Uh, I'll think of a better way of saying that. We are affected and can't affect the supernatural realm. It's not, like, it's not that I'm seeing this for the first time, just to be clear. I wrote this. I just, I don't know. You just sometimes write things and maybe not. Okay, I'll get it. Don't worry. Uh, the second thing is the Bible assumes the supernatural is normative. And, and I think you need to understand this, right? The Bible assumes that the miraculous and supernatural is normative. And the third thing is our knowledge is incomplete in regards to the relationship of the two. I think I've been very honest with you about that. I, I, I don't know. I don't have a secret prayer, handshake, underwear, anything like that that you wear, that you do. I don't have a dance that you do. There's no sacrifice I can tell you to do. There's no, I, I don't know. What God will do is what God will do, and I, I, I don't know. I, I, I never, I try as much as possible never to propose to you that I know exactly how to make God do what he wants. It's a secret handshake, right? You wiggle your thumb, and you put your pinky in there, and then you kind of wiggle your foot. I don't know. I, I, I got nothing. I, I don't know. Right? And, and for some Christians, that can seem very disappointing. Because aren't we just looking for the miracle cure for our lives? Wouldn't that be great if I could just tell you, hey, if you said these words, or you sent me $50, or if I, if I gave you a cloth, or if you went to this special place and prayed these prayers, then this would happen. Wouldn't that be amazing? And the reason I use those examples is because Christians have done that. And guess how many people have been disappointed by that? Everybody's trying to dad out. Right? It's like we, we, just, we, can't, we can't help tripping over ourselves sometimes. And I think we trip over ourselves when we try to step into the shoes of God. Like, I, I, I don't know what is going to compel God to do what he does. And, and the next part of the series, we're, I'm going to tell you, though, I think we can't compel God to do what he does, but I think there are things we can do in our own lives to invite God to live a certain way in our lives, and we'll talk about it in the next series. So here's where, here's where we're going to end off with. This is the last statement I'm going to make, and I'm going to unpack this. God doesn't change what we do. God changes what we want to do. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, and we're going to unpack it in the next encounter, the next story that we want to look at. So oftentimes, Christians will say to me, uh, there's a behavior, there's a thing I do, and I just, I, I just I want to stop doing it. And when we talk like that, when we're talking about behaviors, we're talking about sins, we're talking about actions, we're talking about things that trip us up consistently. Remember I said to you that um, one person came to me a while back and said, you know, um, it, it's not sin that bothers me, it's the sin that I do constantly, the habitual sin. And I said to the person that all sin is habitual. All sin is habitual. I, I don't know any person who sins a new way every time. I, I would be fearful of that person, just to be honest with you, right? But all sin is habitual. I, I, you know, maybe in our earlier parts of our lives that we will do new things or we'll try new things, but really all sin is habitual. Whatever trips you up will always trip you up. But when we look at that, we look at Christianity from external behavioral modification part of it, we are forgetting something, that that's not what Jesus came for. What Jesus came for was the internal change. 
right? Jesus came for changing our desires. He came to change what is inside of us. Because unless he can change what is inside of us, he can't change what we do. So the premise we're going to unpack today is God doesn't change what we do. God changes what we want to do. It's, it's, it's desire versus behavior. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke um, chapter 19. We're going to look at a story, uh, a very famous story. I want to unpack the story for you about uh, a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. And he's a shorter individual, so he's my patron saint, apparently. And, um, and we're going to talk about the story of Zacchaeus. And we're going to use this as a springboard to talk about the greatest miracle in the Bible and about what encountering God may actually look like. So in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 4, Luke sets up the story this way. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. So let's just pause here for a second. Let's just unpack things. First thing is, I think it's kind of interesting, is Jericho, right? Because the, 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 the last time that Jericho was mentioned in the Bible was where the Israelites were destroying it. Right? But yet here it is, it's repopulated itself with different kinds of people, and Jesus is coming back to Jericho in a different fashion. Not to conquer, not to destroy, but to redeem. I kind of like that. I kind of like how I see different parables like that. Now, chief tax collector is something we have to understand. You hear about this all the time, and I don't know, well, I do know how I'm going to explain to you this morning, but you have to understand how hated tax collectors were. So, the best way I can describe it for you is tax collectors were collaborators with the occupying army who then made themselves wealthy off the misery of their countrymen. So, for example, what would happen is, what would happen with the Roman Empire is the Roman Empire occupied Israel. It conquered Israel and it occupied Israel. And within those people, they chose individuals who were going to then get a tax for them, right? Because you know, the the, 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 each, each place that the, that the Romans conquered had to pay for itself. And so what the Romans would do is they would break Israel up into different parts and say, okay, you are a tax collector for this region, and the tax you need to collect from us this year is $200,000. So from the population that we're giving you, we need $200,000 at the end of the year or else we're going to kill you. They don't kill you, but they do, it's, it's definitely not good to disappoint the Romans. Okay? So that's what the tax collector is given, $200,000, right? Now the tax collector goes, I can collect $200,000, but I'm not making any money. So instead, I'm going to collect $500,000. And so the tax collector would then say, okay, um, I need to collect $500,000. Oh, and then the Romans would give them a battalion or legion of Roman soldiers to help them with the collection. Right? Like, like it'd be a whole different story if the government would say, hey, we're gonna, we, you guys have done your income tax. We've all done income tax. And sometimes we owe. Could you imagine someone from the army showing up the next day saying, hey, you owe $2,000. Let's have it. Uh, okay, I, I will go and see what I can find. And you might have to take my laptop because I don't know if I have the money on me, right? So it's this idea of how you unpack it. Now, the interesting thing with the tax collectors is the best analogy I can give to you is that they were collaborators. And one of the best analogies of that was World War II. So when the Nazis would take over an area, what they would use is people within that area to be their representatives. And they would give them pieces of the army to back up what they would see. As a matter of fact, if you've ever heard the term quizzling, has anybody heard the term quizzling before? Quizzling is a term that means traitor, right? So if you look at the dictionary, quizzling means traitor. Well, quizzling comes from a guy named Vidkin Quizzling, 
who is a Polish traitor to the Jews, uh, to the to the to the to the Polish people, to the uh, to the uh, to the Nazis. So Wittgen Quisling betrayed his people to the Nazis in World War II, and thus his name Quisling became synonymous with a traitor. Well, a tax collector is the same thing. A tax collector is an individual that the Romans use who is part of the ethnic background of the place they've conquered that they'll say, you need to now collect money for us. Now, how much would you hate a person who's working with the occupying army who then takes as much money as they want from you and has the backing of the army to take as much money from you? How much would you hate that person? You would hate them like, like, like to the nth degree. That's the reason why whenever Jesus interacted with these individuals, how the people responded in a negative way. Now remember, one of Jesus' disciples was a former tax collector. Now remember, Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means Zacchaeus is telling his tax collectors how much to get and how much he wants from them. So let's go back to the analogy. So if, if a tax collector says, I need to collect $200,000 from this area, Zacchaeus gets to say to this tax collector, Rome wants $200,000 from you, but I want $400,000 from you. And then the tax collector says, then I want $600,000 from the people. Do you see how it kind of amplifies each time? That's what a tax collector is. So when Zacchaeus is trying to get a look at Jesus, now what you have to understand about the story, he's just trying to look at Jesus. He doesn't want to have a conversation with him. He doesn't think that this rabbi, <clears throat> who's known for the miraculous power and the work that he's done, would have anything to do with him. What is his goal in this story? The goal in this story, and again, as Scripture's telling us, the goal in the account is Zacchaeus just wants to look at this rabbi named Jesus. Remember, Jesus' fame has spread across, um, the, across the area. There's this rabbi who confronts the religious leaders and makes them look stupid. There's a rabbi who raises people from the dead. There's a rabbi who speaks to demons and they flee. There's a rabbi who does the most miraculous thing. One time, he fed 5,000 people. With a Happy Meal. I got to see who this guy is. Right? Like, like, I don't know about you, but one of the things I'm curious about when I get to heaven, what does Jesus actually look like? Was he kind of overweight? Was he bald? Was, I, I don't know, did he have like acne? I, I don't know. Like, what did Jesus look like? Right? Because we have the, you know, well, first of all, we have the Scandinavian Jesus, right? The uh, blonde hair, blue eyed. And uh, again, I don't know what to do with that. And then you have the, the very attractive Jewish Jesus, right? Well, okay, uh, maybe, I don't know. And, uh, uh, and so we don't, we don't know what Jesus looked like. So Zacchaeus is like, I heard about this rabbi. I hear he's coming to my town of Jericho. I want to see what this guy looks like. So please understand me very clearly. All Zacchaeus has at this moment in time is curiosity. That's all he has. He is just curious about what Jesus looks like. Now let's continue on to the story. In verse 5, it says this. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, let's just pause there for a second. How did he know Jesus' name? How did, how did Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? So, most commentators that I read said this, that because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, he was well known. Like, it's, it's not as if he was like some hermit, so he was known. Or... The other side of the commentator said that Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, was, was known his name. Either way, Zacchaeus was called by name. Now, the interesting thing about that is if Jesus looked up and saw a guy, in a, a short guy in a tree, hey, tree guy, I want to eat at your house. You're like, 
There's a couple other tree guys around here. Are you sure you got the right one? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you have the right tree guy? Because I don't, I don't know, right? When Jesus calls this guy by name Zacchaeus, he knows exactly what he's doing. There's no, there's no hiding from it. So he calls him by name. And look what he says. Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Do you see the force of the comment there? He's like, hey, Zacchaeus, got any hummus left over? I'd like to come over. <clears throat> hey, Zacchaeus, um, you know, can we, can, we, can we have a conversation? No, no, Jesus says, I must be a guest in your home today. Kind of bold, right? Kind of bold, but Jesus has an intention. Now look at verse 6 and 7. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Now the word notorious there, it's kind of interesting actually. And, and, and the word notorious in the context they're using it is well known. That's the reason why people think that Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was because he was well known. So, so Zacchaeus was uh, notorious for his job, which is a chief tax collector of other tax collectors. So what I think is so interesting about that is, is rather than people going, oh, well, maybe Zacchaeus will stop being such a jerk because Jesus is going to talk to him. Instead, the response of the people who know Zacchaeus is like, is, is to kind of grumble. Now, look at verse 8. Meanwhile, which tells us a time has passed as Jesus has a conversation with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Now, if you do the math here, so on top of Zacchaeus taking half of his wealth, and he's very wealthy, so that's not a small amount of money to give to the poor. But the second part is interesting. So the one part can be said that I'm going to make this decision in emotion right now. Jesus is here, and I want to show Jesus how good I am. Like if I, if I have, like, you know, I always think it's so interesting that when, uh, when, when famous people, rich people give a million dollars. We're like, oh, way to go. Way to go, rich people. It's like, yeah, but they're worth, you know, 400 million. Or they're worth 30 million or, or whatever it would be. We get so excited about this large amount, but we don't realize that it's not really that much because they have tons of money, right? And so when Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give 50%. So if, say, for example, I'll just use modern terms. Say, for example, Zacchaeus has $10 million in his bank account, and he gives $5 million away. Yeah, that's a large amount of money, but he's okay. He's going to be okay, everyone, right? It's not as if it hurts. It's the second part that I think is most astounding. Zacchaeus says, and he, and he says this is Jesus. And again, remember, Jesus is his home. It's not just him and, and Zacchaeus. It's, there are people there as well, too. First of all, you got his 12 disciples and those who were also came in with Jesus to Jericho. So you could imagine that there might be 20 to 30 people in this whatever room would be home and, and the crowd outside. Now, could you imagine as soon as the crowd hears this? Did you hear what Zacchaeus said? He's going to give back four times what he's stolen from us in taxes. That word is going to spread pretty quickly, I'll tell you that right now. So maybe the reason why Zacchaeus gave 50% away, because he's about to lose the other 50%. Because there's going to be a lineup for refunds. Right? There's going to be a lineup for refunds to Zacchaeus. So it's a kind of interesting uh, thing there, what it's done there. Now, I just want to kind of say, show, show you something here, right? Now, look what Jesus says in response to this in verse 9 and 10. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. So what is Jesus telling us here in the story? The first thing is, is that 
whatever Zacchaeus was beforehand, today at this moment in time, because of, of what he said, what he's acknowledged, because of the conversation he had with Jesus, that he is now saved. And again, that word saved feels almost like, ah, what does that even mean? I don't know. But whatever it is, Jesus acknowledged within his spirit that he has made the decision to be a follower of Jesus. And the second thing is, though, is that he has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Now, the word Abraham, the son of Abraham, daughter of Abraham, Jesus uses both, is to show that this individual is now adhering themselves to the covenantal relationship that God set up with Abraham. Now, if you hear this morning and maybe perhaps don't know that story, basically God said to Abraham, for you and your descendants, and that not just meant uh, ethnic descendants, but spiritual descendants as well, because of, your, uh, because of the covenant I'm about to make with you, this is, what, this, is, this is the blessings that God is going to give to you in your life because of that. And so Jesus says to Zacchaeus that this is for you. Now, let me give you some context here because Luke's, Luke chapters 17, 18 is a lead up to chapter 19. Now, let me show you what Luke does in the previous chapter. Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, links our relationship with money and possessions to our salvation. If you go back into Luke's gospel and you look at the parables that Luke uses, and if you look at the stories that Luke uses, you will see more and more that Luke seems to think that uh, someone's ability to, to release or to surrender, whatever it is in their lives that hold them back from God, is a, an indicator of their salvation. For example, in Luke chapter 18, it's the chapter right before this. Remember, Luke's writing this story, but he's kind of, he's, he's giving it in this way that kind of, he's trying, to, he's trying to give us a narrative. Remember in Luke chapter 18, remember the story of the rich man and Jesus? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him a couple of Ten Commandments, and the guy says, yeah, done that. And remember in Mark's gospel, when Jesus has this conversation with this guy, Jesus, Mark's gospel says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Agape, right? Unconditional. And when Jesus looks at him, loves him, he says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and come follow me. And what happens next? The rich and ruler leaves Jesus, very sad, and the Bible tells us because he was of great wealth. Now, I want you to know something about Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't ask Zacchaeus to do what he did. Jesus didn't ask Zacchaeus to give anything away. This is very important. Because what Luke is contrasting here are two individuals with great wealth. One who would rather hold on to his possessions and not, not be a follower of Christ to another who is willing to give away everything he has because of his love for what he's just discovered. Whatever, whatever Christianity is, I, I almost hate to use this term, but you have to forgive me for using it, but there's an exchange that happens. And the exchange is simply this. If you believe the Bible to be true, if you believe the God to be true, what he says and what his promises are from us, then whatever we have in this life is less than, is worth less than what God offers in the next life. Which simply means that we then take in balances the discomfort, the sacrifice, the whatever it would be, and we go, you know what, whatever I have to suffer in this life is pale in comparison to what I will experience in the next life. Remember I said to you that the afterlife is just a trajectory of this life going on forward. So in Luke, what we see here in, the, in Luke chapter 18, a couple of stories that Luke shows us, right? The parable of Pharisee and tax collector, right? What is it, what is it, what's the story tell us? Pharisee comes in, gives lots of money, and, and says, the Pharisee says, well, thank God that I'm not like this tax collector. And what does the tax collector say? He just beats his chest and saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? Who goes away Redeemed that day. Who goes away justified before God? 
right? These are the stories leading up to the story of Zacchaeus. And Luke is doing this intentionally to show us something here, that Jesus didn't ask Zacchaeus to give up anything. Zacchaeus, understanding who truly Jesus was and what Jesus had to offer, decided that what he has done, his way of life, how he saw his wealth, all that type of stuff, was worth less than an encounter and a relationship with Jesus. But the other thing too, though, is that Luke does something else about sight. What's interesting in that, and again, if you ever study scripture in a deeper sense, and in this next series, next part two to this, we're going to talk a little bit about that, you see different um, things, right? So for example, in John's gospel, there's two kind of main metaphors that John likes, light and darkness. John uses those, uh, those metaphors a lot because he likes the idea of God being light and darkness, right? Now remember, before the age of electrical light, electric lights, Right? Can you imagine like, if, if your day was basically when you had sunlight? In Canada, we would absolutely be absolutely screwed because like, you know, we got like, what, an hour and a half of sunlight? Great, all right. And, you know, that, that's all we got, right? But like, in ancient times, light was absolutely like, about, about safety, security. It's about comfort. So John uses light as that metaphor for God. And what does he say in John chapter 1? A light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. That's how John sees Jesus. Right? Remember, see, the second thing about, about John's gospel is he's always about belief. Right? John's gospel is called the gospel of belief because in John's gospel, he highlights this idea of, of what it takes for us to believe in this Messiah Jesus. In Luke's gospel, because Luke, again, is not a disciple of Jesus, so he's not a firsthand eyewitness of what Jesus is talking about, so he's like an investigative reporter. He, he, he says that at the very beginning of his gospel. Dear Theophilus, it seemed good to me to write an account of Jesus, right? But the second thing about Luke, though, is because of Luke is not right there at that moment, Luke is now saying, okay, what, is it, what does it cost to follow Jesus? And it's not an interesting word to use, what does it cost to follow Jesus? Because we don't often think about that. We think about just following Jesus, but we don't actually count the cost of what it actually means to follow Christ. And that cost is shown to us by the way we live our lives. And so John uses these two metaphors and this idea. That's why he talks about this idea of Zacchaeus seeing, of Jesus seeing Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus trying to look at Jesus, right? John is saying, you know what? I mean, sorry, Luke is saying, you can see Jesus, but not actually see Jesus. You can see him, but not really see what he's trying to tell you and teach you. Now, let me unpack this for a second here. The first thing we said about Zacchaeus is that Remember, Zacchaeus had no intention of having a conversation with Jesus because I think Zacchaeus didn't believe, or the short guy syndrome, I don't know what, but uh, Zacchaeus didn't believe that Jesus actually cared about him. He's a collaborator with an occupying army. He's very hated by most people. Therefore, why would a righteous rabbi ever want to speak to him? But there was a curiosity. And, and in that curiosity, I think that maybe there was something more. Hope. Hope that maybe I could be more than I actually am. Hope that I could be more than the sum of my decisions leading me up to this point in time. Hope that maybe perhaps God could love me. Hope that perhaps maybe I could be forgiven. See, one of the greatest lies the enemy tells us is we are unforgiven before God. And this is where the idea of habitual sin comes in. The thing that you do over and over again, the thing you experience, the thing you wrestle with over and over again, this is the thing, this is the lever that the enemy will use to move you away from God. Why? Because if you were truly forgiven, then you would never do it again, says the devil. Not God, says the devil. 
So what was interesting about Zacchaeus is that there was a hunger and curiosity. Zacchaeus heard about Jesus, and that curiosity set him out to discover who this rabbi from Nazareth, Nazareth truly was. The second thing I think about this is those who knew about Zacchaeus judged him the hardest. Transformation confronts our paradigm of grace. Somebody sent me an article on Saturday morning. Um, I always love when I wake up in the morning and someone sent me an article at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, why are you up at 2 o'clock in the morning? Anyways, uh, somebody sent me this article, and the article was about, well, the title was is about Kanye. And, of course, everyone's talking about it in Christianity, or most people are talking about it. Even if you're not a Christian, people are talking about, like, what is going on with Kanye? Now, what is interesting in what the article said is there is something happening within mainstream culture that perhaps we might, may not be kept picking up on. And what it was saying to us is that there's some pretty high-profile people who are declaring that they are now Christ followers or they're following after God. So whether it's Selena Gomez leading worship at Hillsong, whether it's Chance the Rapper saying, hey, you know, this, this is what my intention are for life, whether it's Kevin Durant uh, meeting with um, um, that hipster from uh, Seattle, uh, Judah Smith, that's it, uh, whether it's Chris Pratt talking about his divorce, but also how he's being accepted in his community, and of course, Kanye. And what is interesting to me about Zacchaeus, and, I, and I'm not here to tell you this morning that every one of those people are, are true sons and daughters of Abraham. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is what is interesting to me about Zacchaeus, when I read that in the passage, it kind of brought this article that someone sent to me, was that the people who thought Zacchaeus could not become saved or, or have salvation or be redeemed were those who knew him. And I think we as Christ followers, we have a sense of our own entitlement. That if somebody comes in here from a different way of thinking, a different background, even different way of looking at the world, we think to ourselves, oh, not that one. How often do we prejudge people, whether it's people in our class, people we work with, a family member, saying, there's no way God can reach those people. So therefore, we don't even try anymore. And, and what the article said I thought was kind of interesting was is that we are seeing high-profile people, and you have to understand something. To be a Christian today is not cool. As a matter of fact, you could tell people that you believe sacrificing puppies to this deity and, you know, you'll dance around covered in molasses. I don't know why. Uh, and, and, you, and, and, and the world will go, oh, that's, that's fascinating. Tell me some more. But you tell them you're a Christian. Oh, you are a bigot. You are racist. You are this. You are that. It's like, so you ha what, that's one thing that, that, that the person in the article who wrote the article highlighted was that to, to come out to say to people that I've decided to follow Jesus in this culture, in this context, with the people they rub shoulders with, it's not the coolest thing ever. As a matter of fact, it might be the opposite of the coolest thing ever. They actually highlighted one, one celebrity who came out and said, hey, you know, I'm Buddhist. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. Because, you know, another celebrity said, you know, I'm, I'm studying the ways of Islam. People like, oh, that's great, right? And, and again, they kind of highlighted some individuals who are celebrities who said, hey, these are different people who attend other religions in the world. Like, yeah, that's great. You say you're a Christian. You basically put a big target on your back or your front, whichever way you want to look at it, right? You've done that. So, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know whether these people have actually, are, are actually, but I want to tell you, I want to be very clear with you, I don't care. I'm not there to judge them. Because I was having conversations with me in the lobby <clears throat> two weeks ago, and we were talking about Kanye. And, and, and I said to the person that... <clears throat> If everybody knew everything that you did, as much as everyone knows everything that Kanye does, how would your life stand up to scrutiny? 
And the response was like, I wouldn't like that at all, actually. These people, they're not perfect. They're not prophets either. They're not directing us to, you know, they're creative types or they're artist types, and that's great, and we need those in the church, of course. And they're, they're baby Christians, which means they've just kind of made this decision recently. And just like any baby Christian, you just have to kind of walk alongside them. The first thing when someone told me about Kanye and his album that was coming out, the first thing I said to the person was, who's discipling him? That was the first question out of my mouth. Wasn't his decision, wasn't the album, wasn't anything of that. The first question I asked was, who's discipling Kanye? And they said, oh, he's got a pastor, and they named the pastor. I'm like, oh. And they named another pastor, I'm like, oh. But uh, that's a whole different conversation. But um, I was like, oh, okay. Right, like, I, I, I don't know, I don't know, and I could have put, like, a whole bunch of other pictures up, right? I don't know if, if, the, if the decision's genuine, I don't even know what's going to last. I have no idea. But I think of Zacchaeus, and I think how these people prejudge this tax collector who was a collaborator with, with people, and I think to myself, oh. The video you saw at the beginning there, it's an organization, I've used videos before by this organization called Open Doors. Open Doors is an organization that goes into places where Christianity is persecuted the most. In India, and probably my sister and I were probably hearing him speak that, speak, and we can actually understand Hindi, and so we're actually hearing it, uh, hearing it the way it's supposed to be, but like, you have subtitles. Um, but we're, we're, I, I heard the story of, of Mohan, and I'm thinking to myself, what is it about my life that's so tough compared to his? And it's not about comparison, but it's like, what is it that like, I have to endure in my life to serve Christ the way I need to? Like, like Mohan, his story was so compelling to me, not because of him being uh, racially indifferent or, and all that, but it was about like, there's a young man who suffered mental challenges, who suffered absolute persecution, suffered all of that, but yet at the end, he's telling the story about how Jesus is worth it all. And as we talk about celebrity culture, and I've talked about a little bit about that, I'm always reminded about one of my, one of my favorite pastors, and I, and I have pastors who I, I look up to, and a guy by the name of Francis Chan. It was announced on Wednesday, and Francis Chan gave this article on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, that Francis Chan and his family are, 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 are leaving the country. And this is what he's quoted saying, my family and I are going to move to Asia in February. Chan said Wednesday during a chapel sermon. A few months ago, we were in Myanmar, and my wife and I and kids were just with a translator going from hut to hut in these slums trying to explain to people who Jesus is. These people had never even heard of him, and the eagerness, the way they listened, seeing people get baptized, it was just like, wow, what do we even do on a normal day that even compares to this? But look at the second part of what he said, which I thought was fascinating. He says, I feel like I've been fishing in the same pond my whole life, he said. And now there's like thousands of other fishermen at the same pond, and our lines are getting tangled, and everyone's fighting over stupid things. And one guy tries some new lure, and we go, oh, he's caught a fish. Let's all try his method. And it just feels like, what, we're, what are we all doing here? See, what I think is so interesting to me about Francis is here's a guy who is a megachurch pastor. His church was about 15,000 people in California at one point in time. He leaves that. And when he left that, you don't know about this. Well, maybe you do. Uh, I don't want to make any assumptions. But he got a lot of flack from other megachurch pastors. Like, oh, that's irresponsible. You've grown this church. You should you stay with it. Like, well, what are you doing? You're disappointing all these people. Francis is like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. But this is feeding my ego, not my, my, not my faith in Christ. So he leaves that. And he did this, he's doing this house church right now in San Diego. And he's doing some other stuff, right? But just recently he says, like, you know what? 
it, it's, it's like we have forgotten in, in North America what we're really trying to do as Christ followers. And, he's, and I, love the, I love the analogy he uses of lure, right? This new church. Oh, they've got lights. They've got, they've got really pretty people up on stage. They've got really great music. They've got this. Oh, well, this is a new lure. We should all do this now because this is a new lure to attract people. Because this is how pathetic and shallow we've become. Because this is what we think Christianity is about. No, I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, so what, what's interesting to me about Francis is that what I find with people who really truly encountered Jesus is that it's not about expanding their brand or increasing their audience or all these other things that we think are so important in North American culture. People who really encounter Jesus are those willing to walk away from the lights of, of culture just to follow after Jesus. And I think that is something that would, 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 would amaze me most is if, not that Connie put the album on, maybe he's using his platform, maybe God wants him to, of course. But what if Connie said, you know, I I've decided to follow Jesus, I'm selling everything I have, I'm giving to the poor, and I'm going go to go to Africa. I'm just going to be a missionary in Africa. How much more would you go, oh, okay. I can maybe doubt, you know, his other stuff, but you kind of put everything on the line like that. Wow, okay. Zacchaeus did that. So what's the greatest miracle in the Bible? The most important aspect of the encounter wasn't the decision, but the change trajectory in his life. The greatest miracle is not Jonah and the whale, not raising someone from the dead. The greatest miracle is a city coming to faith or a man or woman sacrificing all for Jesus. The greatest miracle in the Bible isn't all these other things we think about, not the, not the plagues, not the earthquakes, not the fire. Not the miraculous. These are not the greatest miracles in the Bible. You know why we, why we know that? Because there's only one miracle in the Bible where heaven rejoices what happens on earth. Salvation is the only miracle that has heavenly repercussions. Let me show you something. And again, this is Luke, right? In Luke chapter 15, look what, uh, look, look what Luke does. In Luke chapter 15, verse 10 says this. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And then what does Luke 15 do? It shows three stories of lost, right? Lost coin, lost sheep, and prodigal. And what is the response each time in these things? Is that, yes, lost is found for sure, but the response is celebration. Heaven did not celebrate because 5,000 people were fed. Heaven did not celebrate because uh, someone was raised from the dead. Heaven celebrates when a man or woman decides to follow Jesus, to cross over from enemy of God to friend of God, to cross over from their selfish, narcissistic life to what God wants for them. And not just in that moment, but to continue on from that point on. That's the greatest miracle. And you know what's interesting to me right now? Is we think to ourselves, if, oh, if I just had this miraculous thing happen. Right now in this room are, 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 is, is a room full of miracles, and yet we look so lightly on it. Whenever you, if you have, if, 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 you have decided to follow Jesus in this room. Whenever you made that, made that decision, I wonder if when we get to heaven, we get DVD of the, of the angels in heaven celebrating. You know? When, 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 when Sarah Wibinga, I got it right there. I know, right? I always call her Wibinga. Uh, when Sarah Wibinga decided to follow Jesus, and I know Sarah has, because she's in my city group, and I've, I, I've been in her life for a couple of years, and I, I see God in here, and I, I don't want to make her feel awkward this, this morning. Um, I'm not watching her, just to be clear. Um, but Jesus and Sarah is so, so obvious and so clear to me. When Sarah decided to follow Jesus, whenever that was, 
there was a party in heaven saying, party for Sarah Wibinga. Wibinga. There is a party, there is a party that is just for her celebrating her decision. And I could go through this room right now and I could make all of you feel awkward, which again, the way I teach, it's just, it's just easy, right? I could go through this room here and saying, when you decide to follow Jesus, there is a party where an angel's going, did you know? Did you hear? They've decided to stop fighting God. They, thought, they stopped act, trying to be an enemy of God, stopped living their lives for themselves, and they decided to follow Jesus. You know what that means? It means that they're going to be with us for all eternity. And there's a celebration in heaven. That's what Jesus is. It's the only miracle that has uh, 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 heavenly repercussions. That's it. Let me close. Romans is a very complicated book, but I love what Romans 12 says. And I think probably Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, uh, is, is probably the crux, the center of what Paul is trying to teach us. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. This is from the NLT version. Two concepts here that Paul's using that are actually contradictory. On the first one is living, but the other is sacrifice. When something is sacrificed, it does not live anymore. Thus the term sacrifice. But Paul uses this interesting term here, and he brings two concepts that are key to Christianity, and he brings them together. And the concept is this. As Christ followers, if you be a Christ follower this morning in this room, you have decided to die to your own agenda. And because you've decided to die for that, you've now just chosen to live for Jesus. And please hear me very clearly, that can be a give and take for sure. And I don't want to say, I don't want to ever make the assumption that, oh, you decided to follow Jesus, everything's going to work out great. Or you decided to follow Jesus, oh, it's all easy from here on in. Matter of fact, it might be the exact opposite of that. But what Paul's saying here is this is what we are meant to do. Is we are meant to give our, 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 our lives to Jesus. And that we die to ourselves and we live for him. But now look at verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you in a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Good, pleasing, perfect. Where should I eat today? You know, it's good. How do I serve God? Pleasing. What's God's destiny for my life? Perfect. Good, pleasing, perfect. But the point that's interesting in that is this word transform. Now, in the Greek, there's a way of looking at, uh, there's a tense in the Greek um, that is a repetitive tense. And that so sometimes with Paul or the, or the Greek New Testament writers use it, it, it's called aorist, but you don't need to know that. And it, basically what it is, is it's an action that repeats itself. So from that point in time, the action happens, it just repeats out from there. The word that Paul, the, the, the tense that Paul uses the word for transform, repetitive action. How are you transformed? Repeatedly, daily. When do you stop being transformed? When you are dead. So whether you are in school right now, or you've been following Christ as long as I or Martin, or others who are perhaps older in our faith, you're still being transformed. 
You are always being in this progression of change that God wants for you. There's a fluidity to your transformation. Yes, you made a decision to follow Jesus like Zacchaeus, but yes, from that decision, there are implications from that life onwards from there. Zacchaeus is probably not going to be a tax collector from that point on. If he's not going to cheat anybody anymore, he's not going to make any money. And if he's not going to make any money, he's got to find a new occupation. What does Zacchaeus just do for Jesus? He just sacrificed everything he had for Jesus. Why? Because after speaking with Jesus, he knows that whatever Jesus has to offer him is worth more than everything he has right now. That's the exchange. Christianity is many things. And sometimes all I, all I find myself doing is apologizing to people about Christians. And that's just, we are human beings, so we actually make mistakes. I do it all the time. But at the core, of Christ, uh, the core of Christianity is this concept of transforming to be like Jesus. And I don't know how all the mechanics or how that works. All I know is that whatever Jesus has for me is worth more than what I have for myself. And so the exchange is so easy for me. So when God calls me to do something or act a certain way or, or, or go somewhere to teach something or, or whatever, it's like, <sighs> I really don't want to. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to. I'm lazy. I'm tired. I, I've done enough. I just, that's it. But see, the thing is, though, the thing I'm trying to remind myself after 48 years of trying this thing out, of being alive, but you get the idea. I'm still working through the transformation part of it. I'm still being called to change and to be transformed. Over five years ago, I left the church that I was working at to plant this church. <laughs> Had you told me what that five years after that would be like, I don't know if I would do it again. I'd be like, huh, that's a lot of work. Huh, huh. I used to have three full-time assistants. Huh, that was so nice back then. No, I'm teasing. Well, not really. Um, but had I known what God has called me to, but I just want you to know something, that what I've experienced in the last five years as, as this church planner, as this bivocational pastor, I've learned more about my faith with God and also perhaps a little bit more about my shallowness and my own faith from that experience as well. And, and at the very core of that, though, is my trust in God has just grown because it's all I got. It, it's literally all I got. And so we're going to have a time of prayer this morning. And so I told you this last week, and we do this on occasion. The reason we don't do it every week, the reason we don't do it too regularly, because I don't want it to lose its specialness. And I want to explain to you what's about to happen, because I always want you guys to know. I always want to help you to understand. Um, the worship team is going to come up, and we're going to do, we only did one song at the beginning, so we're going to do several songs now. And we're going to have a time of prayer. So I can't teach this series on the supernatural, teach this series about seeking after God and without giving you the opportunity to do so. And what we, t we do here at UCC is we have a time of, uh, of prayer and, uh, and we have a time of anointing. So people will come for it and we will anoint them with oil, as the Bible says. And, and, and Ben, our elder from UCC, is going to join me at the front as well too. And we're both going to pray together. And the reason I do this is just to try to snap you out of your comfort zone. Just to try to do something different to help you understand that God has more for you. I think the most tragic 
mistake the North American church has made is that we've thought that we've discovered all there is to know about God. That we've discovered all we know there is about God in our own lives. We think that the, whatever we're going through right now, that's it. I swear to you, the Spirit of God is like, don't you realize there's so much more for your lives? Don't you realize that you're only scratching the surface? And this is the kind of thing that I, we, the reason why we do this service is to kind of snap us out of this kind of like just behavioral kind of like, uh, I wake up, I go to bed, I wake up, go to bed. It's like, okay, let's see if we can't carve out some time just to think about what God wants for us. I know in this room there are people with needs. I know there are people who just want the more things of the Lord. And so I want to provide this opportunity for us to have a time of prayer. So what we will do, as we always have done, is, is that we're going to have time of worship, and I'm going to be at the frontier, and, and, and Ben will join me, and we're going to pray with you, those who come forward. And we're just going to pray with you, and then we're going to send you back. We're not going to make anything any, any weird or anything like that, but we just want to have time for prayer with you. But hear me very clearly, and just hear me very clearly on this. If nobody comes forward, I'm absolutely okay with that. I'm not going to change things. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to go, well, if you, exhale, if you exhale carbon dioxide, you should come for... I'm not going to do that. I don't, we don't do that at UCC. We don't, we don't manipulate. We, don't, we just want God to do what God's going to do. I, I need you to hear that. I, 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 I'm trying as much as possible to allow God to increase and I to decrease. So whatever happens, it's, it's, it's really God's in God's hands. And, and, and that's really, the, that's, that's my heart. So if we, we start this time and we just, we just worship together and we close, I'm okay with that. You know why? Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's God saying, yeah, that's okay. But if you would like to come forward for prayer, if you, you want to come forward and you say, you know what, I just, I just need more of God in my life because I've, 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 I've stagnated, I've plateaued, I, I don't feel, or, or if you're wrestling with something, or maybe you want to come forward on proxy for somebody else. There's somebody in my life that I just, they just need to know Jesus. I've thought of them as a Zacchaeus. No way God can meet that person. No way. I, I just wish we could, let, we could let God break out of the box we put him in. I, I do. Because I am starting to realize, not starting, but I'm, I'm growing in my realization that God has so much more. We just need to give him space. We just need to give him the opportunity because he has more for us. And, and that's the more that I want to stir in our spirits this morning. It's just that more of the Lord in our lives. And that's actually what the second part of this series is going to be. So let's stand. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say a prayer to kind of start us off here. And uh, let's just bow our heads. Let's just close our eyes. Let's just have a moment of, of quiet reflection and meditation. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. I just want you to take an opportunity just to, to speak to the Lord. What is it you need from God right now? And, and, and maybe you're here like, you know what, Lord? Maybe you just want to thank God for what he's done. Maybe you have felt God's presence in your life and you're like, Lord, thank you. The only prayer that God says yes to every time, the only prayer, is when we ask for more of him. Lord, I want more of you. God, I want your presence in my life. I want your spirit in my life. I want more of you. That's the only prayer that God says, yes, heck yes. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place right now, and we ask in Jesus' name that as we set this time aside for you right now, we pray, Holy Spirit, for an authentic move of your presence right now in Jesus' name. Lord, we're not going to manipulate. We're not going to try to make people think or do or behave. We just want you, God. 
Jesus, you are worth everything. We just want more of you, Lord Jesus. Lord, for those in this room this morning who need to hear from you, who need to experience you, I just pray in Jesus' name, God, that you would just meet us right now. God, for those who will come forward or those who just will say where they are, it doesn't matter, God, that you would just meet us. Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us. Holy Spirit, that you'd breathe life into us. That we would hear you, that we would know you, that we'd experience you as you intended. In Jesus' name, amen.